Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to start a brand new series today, and we're calling it Daniel. Pretty creative, I know. Daniel chapter 1. We'll get there in just a second. Twelve years ago, I came to North Shore fresh out of Bible college uh, to be the youth pastor here. Revolution Youth Ministry. We met on Tuesday night, and um, I struggled. I struggled hard. Uh, I wasn't very good. I didn't know too much. It was during that first year, uh, as the youth pastor there, Revolution Youth Ministries, we're meeting in the, the gym there on a Tuesday night. We had a Speed the Light rally. And uh, Speed the Light is basically the missions funding program through the Assembly of God, which is our denomination, that encourages students, encourages teenagers to give financially to missions. It encourages them to get involved in missions, and they do some phenomenal things through Speed the Light. Speed the Light is an amazing program that God has blessed, and the kingdom has been advanced significantly through the efforts of the teenagers. And so um, most of the time in churches, and just in general, teenagers get a bad rap as being sort of takers, but at least in the Speed the Light program, Man, they operate as givers, and God does some amazing things. It's often through Speed the Light that missionaries in Africa and different places are, are provided vehicles or, or sound equipment or just any of those uh, big tangible things that are expensive, and Speed the Light funds that, and it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal program. Um, but in that first year, even as that youth pastor who knew absolutely nothing about nothing, though I just graduated, so I thought I knew everything, it was in that Speed the Light program that I saw a major flaw in their system. A typical Speed the Light rally for a youth group goes, goes something like this. A speaker comes in and they invite several of the surrounding churches to come together, and so the speaker comes in and they share some amazing stories, some amazing mission stories about people being delivered from demons or, or rose from the dead or, or deaf ears open. They just share some amazing stories of God's work and, and how the kingdom has been advanced, and then they'll follow it up with a story about a small town uh, uh, with a youth group of about seven people who gave $8,000 to Speed the Light last year. And then they just kind of encourage you and, and, and lay that out there. And then they say something like this, imagine what a group this size could do, right? If they were seven people and they gave 8,000, do the math, you guys. And, and they, they really get you excited and, and pumped up. And, and, and then they ask you to make a pledge. They, we would ask, um, or they would ask the students to make a pledge, make a promise of how much money you were going to give to speed the light that next year. Then, then they'd write that down. Or they would say, think of the number. <clears throat> they'd write it down. But now they'd say, scratch that number out. Now think of a number that you could only do if God blessed it or if God was in it. Now write that number down. And so that number increased significantly, right? Because you can't like limit God, but you know, so you write a different number down. Then what would happen is the team of people that came with the speaker while the speaker was speaking would add up all the pledges during the service. And at the end of the service, they would announce how much the group had pledged to speed the light. I'll never forget as a youth pastor for like six months, and we did our Speed the Light pledge. I didn't know these kids very well. I, I knew them good enough, but I didn't know them well. And so that Speed the Light rally came, 
He stands up there. The speaker stands up there, and he says, this is amazing. Tonight, we have a new record in the state of Nebraska. I've never seen a youth group pledge this much before in my life. And I'm thinking, oh dear, right? What have we gotten ourselves into? He says, you guys as a youth group have pledged $20,000 to speed the light. Woo, give yourselves a hand. And everybody's cheering and hollering and excited because they wrote some numbers down. They've not actually given anything, but they wrote some numbers down and they're getting excited. And, and, and at the end of the evening, I was looking through the cards and, and the speaker there was saying, hey, Pastor Chris, now you're gonna have to help them do this. I'm like, oh yeah? Maybe you should help them do this because you're the one who, and so I was looking through the cards and said one kid, saw one kid who'd been there like once before, pledged $2,000. I knew that probably wasn't gonna happen. There was a 13 year old pledged $1,000, right? Like, most 13-year-olds don't even know how much a Big Mac costs, right? They just know that a Big Mac costs whatever mom gives them, and, and that's good enough. And so these kids are just adding zeros. $20,000 was not happening. They may have well pledged a billion dollars because it just wasn't happening. And so it was in that moment that I realized that there was a flaw in the system. What happened was, Almost everyone set the pledge so high that that year they never even tried. Though there was encouraging, though there was pushing, though we, we tried to do things, because they set the bar so high, they didn't even try. The thought was for many of them that, look, I made the promise, I made the pledge, but unless I stumble upon a great big bag of money, you and I both know this isn't happening, right? So they made the pledge so high that they never even tried. Some of them, most of them, could have given at least $20. But because they pledged 2000 they didn't even give two. They said it's so high. And oftentimes we see that in, in our faith walk. As, as believers, as Christians, as, as people who are emotional beings, there's oftentimes that we come to different services or, or we find that moment where we feel like, man, we're ready to commit, we're ready to go all in. And we make a pledge, not a financial pledge, but a promise. We make, a, we make an integrity promise. We make a spiritual promise to ourselves, to God, to the church. And what happens is once we get ourselves out of that situation, we realize that the promise was too high, that the pledge was too high, because we do that, and I, I've done that, and I know you do that. Um, we say something like, man, I'm going to, from here on, I am going to be a perfect parent, and I'm going to have patience with my kids all the time. I'm not going to lose my patience with my kids anymore. And then we realize, like in two minutes, that we've set the pledge too high, right? Like, man, that's going to be hard. So because I can't do that, I'm not even gonna try anymore. All right, kids, you get it, you know what I mean? Because we pledge too high and we realize that that's unattainable, we don't even try. Sometimes you think, man, I, I'm never going to think another bad thought in my life. I'm selling out completely to God. I'm, never, I'm gonna take captive my thoughts. I'm never going to think a bad thought ever again. On your way home from church, some moron cuts you off, right? That's, that's over, right? 
But we do that, we set it so high, and I'm terrible about this as a pastor because I feel like it's one of my responsibilities to help us to be more and to dream bigger, and so I'm always saying do more, be more, commit more, be perfect, right? And we try, but we realize very quickly that we can't. Even in our best efforts, we realize that we fall radically short. With my kids, they're always climbing on me. We're, we're doing piggyback rides, and I'm always a stinking horse, and I'm tired of being a horse, but they always say, my turn to be, you know, and so I always have to carry them around. And, and then last night, my daughter was reading a book, and in this book, there was a picture of a dad with a, a little girl on, on his back, and the dad was smiling, like, ah, smiling. And, and she, says, she says, Daddy, how come you don't ever smile? I said, what are you talking about? She said, this little girl's riding her daddy's back and he's smiling, how come you don't smile? I said, Naomi, you're on my back all the time. And she said, I know, but you don't smile. (laughs) All right, no more piggyback ride, you know what I mean? I mean, we try and we try and we try, but we realize we can't. And so I wanna set your mind at ease this morning. I'm not gonna ask you to make a big pledge. I'm not gonna ask you to make a big commitment. This morning, This is a $2 message, okay? This is just a $2 message. Today we're starting a series called Daniel. This message only has one point. That's all you get for $2, right? Has one point. But I want you to know something. If you don't know who Daniel is, Daniel is amazing, right? In all of our Bible heroes that we have, which there's a lot of them, almost every one of them are, are majorly flawed in big areas, But in Daniel, we really don't find any flaws. Doesn't mean he doesn't have any, we just don't see them in scripture. Daniel was awesome. You read through the book of Daniel, Daniel lived through through four different kings and different nations in, in, in power, and Daniel rose to the top in every single one. Daniel, at the end of his life, at around 85 years old, was overwhelmed with dreams and visions of things that are going to happen in the future, in time, prophetic things that we haven't even seen come to pass yet. Daniel, for us, is very much a modern-day prophet because the things he was pointing to are things that are yet to come. Daniel was so full and so overwhelmed with the Spirit of God that when he would get those visions, he would begin to tremble, and, he, and then he would fall down on his face, and everybody would run from him, and as he would stand back up, the Holy Spirit would empower him and show him some amazing and terrifying things. And Daniel wrote those down for us. Daniel was an amazing man. Daniel withstood the lions. Many of you know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit. Daniel was friends with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew children that lived through the fiery furnace. Many of you know that story. Daniel was an amazing man. Many people believe that the three wise men that went to uh, Bethlehem when Jesus was born, you guys know the story? The three wise men that went to the Bethlehem when Jesus was born, many people believe, I've read commentaries that said most believe that those men were influenced by Daniel. Daniel had the power, the influence, and the authority to change nations. Daniel was an amazing, an amazing man. So let's talk about Daniel for a little bit. Daniel chapter one, verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now let me just explain this as we're going on. Judah 
was the people of God. Judah was supposed to be the good guys. And so when we're talking about Judah, Judah is the good guys. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Judah's the good guys, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, these are the bad guys, right? Babylon, um, this is where the pagans lived. They, they, they served many, multiple gods. They served idols and, and demon worship. These were the bad guys. And so, again, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the good guys, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the bad guys, came to attack Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Judah. It was the most important city politically, spiritually, religiously. It was the center of Judah. They came to attack Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, that's significant, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were bigger, faster, stronger. It was that the Lord ordained this. Okay? This is important. And um, okay, so let's back up. Gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, invades Judah, attacks and destroys the city, and attacks and plunders the temple of God, full of massive amounts of gold, massive amounts of things that have been uh, dedicated and consecrated to the holy service and worship of God. So he took these gold articles and put them in a temple that he had dedicated to his God, to a pagan false God. So you have all of these holy artifacts that have been dedicated to God that are now in sort of the, the treasury of a demon, essentially, is, what happened, is what's happening. And the Bible says, this is the Lord's doing, that the Lord had allowed this, that he had uh, ordained this. Before this siege and before Nebuchadnezzar came for years and years before this attack, the prophets of God have been warning the kings, been warning the rulers, have been warning the people of Judah about their immorality, to repent, to turn away from their sin, to repent from their idolatry, that if you continue on this path, it is going to lead to the nation uh, being basically overcome, to the destruction of the nation, to the destruction of the temple, and to the overthrowing of the holy capital city. The prophets warned and foretold of the day when this would happen, when everybody would be um, uh, overwhelmed and taken into captivity, basically as slaves or as prisoners of war into Babylon. The men of God said this year after year after year. You got people like Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah saying this year after year. They're begging and they're pleading with the people of Judah, turn from your sin. Turn from your immorality. Turn from your pagan idolatry. Repent and serve God alone like we did in the past. Serve God once again. Their warnings fell on deaf ears and the people continued to pursue anything other than God. And God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgrace his name. So God allowed this to happen. God allowed them to be overwhelmed and taken into captivity because make no mistake, God is in control. Know this, that no matter what happens, God is in control in your life. Last week we talked about the fact that we are never 
forever in a moment without hope because of the resurrection. Know this, no matter what circumstance, no matter what situation you face, God is in control. There is nothing that happens that is outside of God's control. And so the Babylonians came just as the prophets had warned. Judah was being judged because they felt they no longer needed God. Now, I want you to hear this because many times we think that this, the Bible stories in the Old Testament are old, outdated, and don't apply to us today. But I want you to hear this. Judah was being judged because they felt like they no longer needed God. You were free to serve God if you wanted But what they did was they added God to just the bottom shelf. There's lots of other options. The people of God started worshiping other gods, and it just turned into a mess. Judah was being judged because they despised their religious freedom to serve and worship the one true God. Let me say that again. Judah was being judged because they despised their religious freedom. To openly and faithfully and without fear of any kind of repercussion or persecution, they were allowed to honor, serve, and worship Almighty God. And and as I'm putting this sermon together, I, I, I wonder, can you think of another nation that once faithfully honored God? It gave God supreme status and gave God the, the top-tier spot in their consideration, but then relegated him to a bottom shelf with many other options. Can you think of another nation that's done that? Can you think of another nation that has taken for granted and despised their religious freedoms? Can you think of another nation that has traded righteousness for immorality? Listen, I think we have to stop looking at the Bible as an old, dusty, outdated collection of fairy tales and begin to hear the warnings that are ringing out with clarity to us today. Listen, every single word of this applies to us today, and we need to listen to it. Every promise and every warning, and we need to listen. Additionally, has there ever been a nation that was free and encouraged to worship the one true God but instead chose to reject him and marginalize him that was not subject to judgment. Has there ever been a nation that has been blessed, that has been chosen, that has been overwhelmed with the blessings and the protection and the favor of God, that that nation rejected God, that they weren't subject to punishment? When God isn't permitted to rule, he will overrule. This is true for nations as well as individuals, and listen, this is a good thing. So God allowed this to happen in Judah. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Basically, this was the common practice amongst the kingdoms of that day. When you would conquer a city, when you would overthrow a nation, you would take the strongest, the best, the brightest, the nobility, 
the best looking, the most athletic, and then you would take them into your court, you would treat them well, you would give them the best of the best stuff, and you would brainwash them into the beliefs and the customs of your nation, and then after several years of brainwashing them and using them in your nation and giving them positions of power and influence, your country would be stronger. This was the custom of the day, verse five. The king assigned them these exiles, these prisoners of war from Jerusalem, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Again, the captives were treated wonderfully. They ate from the king's table. They ate better than most of the people within Babylon. They were to be educated in the the capital, in the, the, the castle there for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So what we have here is a group of kids, really, 15, 16-year-old kids. They'd been kidnapped. They'd um, been trained, or they're going to be trained to be the best possible Babylonians that they could be. This, for them, was a hostile environment. It was a hostile culture. It was a culture that wasn't used to their customs, to their traditions, or their beliefs. It was a nation that had very little respect or very little interest in their God. It was a nation that had very little respect or very little interest in who they worshiped or who they served or how they served him. It was a nation that knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that their God was stronger than the Judah's God because they won the battle. It was a nation that had nothing to do with God or no use for Almighty God. For these boys who were captive in Babylon, their religious freedom was completely stripped away. That which they had taken for granted had been completely removed. And so these boys were being forced to become Babylonians in every sense of the word. Verse 6. Among these boys who were taken captive, who were being trained at court, who were eating from the king's table for three years, among these boys were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. The chief of the eunuch changed their names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. These men were superior in every way. They were the best, the brightest, the most handsome, the most capable. They were smart. And they were being brainwashed. They were being turned into Babylonians. In many ways, for these boys, they didn't feel like slaves. They didn't feel like captives. Though they were Though they were, they weren't treated that way. In many ways, it was an honor to be trained as a future officer in the king's palace. This was, think of like West Point Academy. This is is what was happening. But it was also difficult for these four Jewish boys. They, they They would have to adapt themselves to the ways and the thinkings of the Babylonians. They couldn't be Jews like they were before. They were in a new place, a new custom, new ideas, new languages. They were even given new names there. For Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. Talking about Jehovah God. God is my judge. They gave him a new name. They called him Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects his life. So before, his name Daniel pointed to his God. His new name pointed to a Babylonian God. So from here on out, in Babylon, Daniel would be known as Belteshazzar, and everybody would know that he has been consecrated to a demon God, Bel. 
They were trying to change them in every sense of the word. They were attempting to remove God from every aspect of these boys' identity. And remember, he was just a teenager. And as is in the case when a nation and a people abandon and turn their back on God, here's the good news. God always preserves a faithful remnant. God always has a handful of people that he can trust and that he can lean on to do great things for him. A, a handful, a remnant of people who refuse to compromise, the, that, that are unwilling to abandon their faith and their God. And I feel like, <clears throat> I feel like as I was preparing this, that this is something I'm supposed to say this morning. I don't know what tomorrow holds for us. I believe God is in control, but... I'm not a prophet. I, I can't see into tomorrow. I don't know where we're going. I don't know how this is all going to end. I, look, and I know there's a lot of political stuff going on. I, I don't put a lot of trust in the promises of politicians either. But what I do see is that we are becoming a nation that is becoming more and more dismissive of Jesus. We are becoming a culture that is more and more hostile towards Christianity and there may be a day, I don't know, there may be a day in America where the spiritual tide turns, but know this, that there will always be a remnant. There will always be a remnant. There will always be a people that God chooses and that God holds and that God sustains and God sets up to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. A people that refuse to compromise, a people that is unwilling to abandon their faith and their savior. And as I think about this, and I think about our church, and I think about the church in America, I pray may we be a people whose faith is real and not fickle. May we be a people who are grounded and know who our Savior is. May we be a people that no matter what happens, we will remain. And though we hope for ongoing religious freedom, and though we hope to, to get back to that place where we as a nation serve and worship God, though we hope that that remains and that continues, we will resolve that no matter what happens, we will remain and we will be a remnant. No matter how much the culture changes, no matter how much the tide turns, let us be a people that refuse to dishonor God. Verse eight, it continues. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. Uh, the chief is saying, I fear Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse conditions than the youths who were of your own age? So you would danger my head with the king. <clears throat> so there is no doubt that the king's food was the best in all the land. Why would Daniel and these three men refuse to eat the king's food? There's a couple reasons. Number one, it would have made them ceremonially unclean according to the laws given by Moses. Now I want you to hear this. Though these laws did not govern the nation of Babylon, they governed the hearts of the remnant. Listen, these laws did not govern the nation of Babylon, but they governed the heart of the remnant. Now, it doesn't matter what culture we're in. 
It doesn't matter what nation we're in, and it doesn't matter what the laws say or how the laws change. It doesn't matter if we are in a place where their laws govern us. We know that we have to be governed by the law of God. Amen? That no matter what nation, no matter what is legal or illegal, we as the remnant have to be a people who are governed by the word of God. Amen? This was Daniel, and this was his three friends. Number two, the food would have been ceremonially offered to idols first, and the faithful, the faithful remnant refused to eat it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it because it was offered to idols. So the food is the dilemma. The food becomes a morality issue. The food becomes a spiritual issue for Daniel and his three friends. And I want you to see this. They didn't stage a protest. They didn't fight anyone. They didn't burn anything to the ground. They didn't demand their, excuse me, they didn't demand their rights or their religious liberties. They simply asked a man who was in leadership over them, who had favor with them, they simply asked him, would you allow us not to defile ourselves? Would you allow us this little bit of freedom here so that we wouldn't defile ourselves? And because God had given them favor with the chief, and because I believe the chief wanted to help them out, he had a conversation with them. And, and essentially, this is what he says to the, three, to the four men. He says, guys, look, I would. I like you guys. I, I, I understand that you're in a difficult position and you have different beliefs and customs. I would. But listen, there's an issue. It's my responsibility to take care of you. It's my responsibility to make sure that you are strong. It's my responsibility to, to make sure that you are healthy. And I feel like the eunuch was saying, look, I'm not so concerned with the, the spirituality of it. I'm not so concerned with the morality of it. But I, I know this, that if you eat meat, you're going to be stronger, fatter, and healthier than if you just eat vegetables. I didn't even get an amen there. I was waiting for one. <laughs> All right, he says, he says this. This is a three-year process. Understand this. This is a three-year process. If you're going to eat nothing but vegetables for three years and drink water for three years, I'm going to present you to the king at the end of that, and you're going to stand there, three skinny, sickly little boys, and the king is going to have my head because he's going to think, what happened to these four men? Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over him, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, this is what Daniel said, this was his plan. He said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And, I love this, and deal with your servants according to what you see. I love this because um, Daniel Put it in God's hands. Amen? Daniel just said, well, well, let's see if God doesn't come through. Let's give God an opportunity to prove himself. So let's, let's make a little test here. Let's do this for 10 days. We're going to try our best. We're going to honor our God for 10 days. And if God blesses it, then so be it. If God doesn't, then you do whatever you see fit. It's your call. You've given us a chance. Thank you. But you deal with your servants according to what you see at the end of 10 days. I love that. I don't think we do that enough. 
I think too much we plan and we scheme and we manipulate and we try to explain things away. I wonder what would happen if we as a people just started putting things in God's hands. I'm just giving this to God and I'm gonna see what happens. I think more often than not, God would come through for us as we try to serve, worship, and honor him. So that's Daniel's plan. He says, let's make a small change and give God an opportunity to come through in a really, really big way for 10 days. Daniel says, I understand your concern, but let's just do a test run, a trial run. Let's make it 10 days, and then you make the call, whatever you see fit. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And can I say something? We see this as clear. It isn't a food thing. It's a faith thing, right? It wasn't the food that made them fatter and stronger and better in appearance. It was their faith. They weren't sustained by the vegetables. They were sustained by the Spirit of God. They did a very small thing. Look, I don't mean to be offensive to any vegans or vegetarians here this morning, right? But you're going to be fatter and stronger by eating meat and not just vegetables, Good, I got one. Like, we don't see any pro athletes who are vegans, right? They have, to, they have to have meat to be healthy and strong. Melissa cooked some bacon the other day, and I'm telling you, I ate some, and I just started flexing. I felt stronger <laughs> after eating the bacon. I don't know. I, I just did. That whole Popeye spinach thing, that was a lie, right? It was a lie. We're not falling for it. But listen... We know that it was the veggies that didn't make them strong. God did. God did. Their diet didn't sustain them. Their faith and their commitment to a holy God was what sustained them. God's supernatural response to a bold faith. Verse 16. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. For how long? Three years. They ate vegetables and water for three years. If you remember what we read earlier, it was a process of three years. They were being trained for three years. They were being prepared for three years. They were being taught for three years. They were eating at the table for three years before they were going to be presented to the king. Daniel said, we don't want to eat that food. Give us vegetables and water. I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into, right? And so they did the test 10 days later. They were doing fine. In fact, they were doing better. And so they took the meat and the wine away and gave them vegetables for three years. So they would sit down at the table and they would eat their veggies. And all their buddies that had been taken captive from Jerusalem were sitting next to them and they were getting steak, cheeseburgers, and fried chicken. I don't know if they had all that. But they were getting all that good stuff. This doesn't seem like a big thing. In fact, it seems a little silly. And I wonder if those other Jerusalem captives were looking at Daniel and his three friends and they were thinking, man, they're just a little odd. They're a little off. They're a little quirky. They're a little different. You know, I, I just, I don't know. They take things too seriously. They just, they just go overboard. And it doesn't seem to matter much to the other people, but it matters a great deal to God. There's a lot of times that we 
take those steps to honor God and everybody else looks at it and think, you know what, this is just kind of silly or weird. Know this, it matters a great deal to God. And at the end of the three-year period, all the captives stood before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, all those who had been exiled from Judah and Jerusalem into Babylon had been trained and ate at the king's table for three years. They stood before the king. And in verse 19, it says this, and the king spoke with them. So they met with the king personally. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters there were in his kingdom. These boys at 18 and 19 years old were wiser and more full of wisdom than all of his wise men in his kingdom. Why is that? Was there something special about these boys' intelligence? Probably, but I feel like as they daily honored God, the Holy Spirit was filling them up with wisdom, anointing, and power. And God set them apart as a remnant because they were willing to set themselves apart to honor God. For three years, they ate vegetables and drank water. For three years, in a very small but very public way, they were saying, I choose God. I choose God. Worship team, please come. For three years, they were solidifying their faith. For three years, they were solidifying their resolve. More broccoli, more celery, more lettuce. For three years, listen, for three years, they were preparing to face the fiery furnace. For three years, Daniel was preparing to face the hungry lions. Maybe that's why the lions didn't want him, right? Eat vegetables all the time. For three years, they dared to put their faith in Almighty God, listen to this, by eating carrots and celery. Here's the one point that I want you to consider this morning. In the face of the social and cultural changes, this is, would be my challenge. Dare to be a little bit different. Dare to be a little bit different. Just a little bit. Those guys didn't make big, outrageous claims. They didn't yell and scream about anything. They just said, hey, can we have vegetables instead? And when the eunuch said, no, this isn't a good idea, it's going to cost me my head, Daniel just said, well, let's test it out and see. Let's test it out and see. Dare to be a little bit different. I think that oftentimes we as believers, we as Christians, we, we can get emotional We can get excited, and that's okay. Sometimes we pound our chest and prop ourselves up and say, we need to be revolutionaries, world changers, and that's fine. We do. We prop ourselves up and we say, I'm going to be the new countercultural hero. That's fine. We need to do that. But the likelihood of that happening is pretty improbable. It's being nationally known world changers and so as we look at that and we realize we think well 
since I can't do that, I'm just not going to do anything. And so I, I wonder if <clears throat> perhaps you could give $20. But since you've pledged 2000 you refuse to give 2 I'm not talking about money here. I'm talking about commitment to God. I'm talking about our willingness to be used. I'm talking about the faithfulness that we have with our Almighty Father. I'd ask you to dare to be a little bit different. Dare to be a little bit different. Listen, when Daniel was taken captive into Babylon at 15 years old, I don't think that he thought that when he was 85 years old, he would have a vision of the end times and the Antichrist and judgments and God coming back or Jesus coming back in power and victory. I don't think that when he was taken captive there or when he started to eat vegetables, he was thinking that he was going to have to face hungry lions. I don't think that when Daniel was making the decision to eat vegetables instead of meat, he knew or he knew that he was going to, in, in essence, save all of the wise men in Babylon because when he prayed to God, God revealed to Daniel the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and then he interpreted it. Listen, read the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he wasn't sure about his wise men. He didn't fully trust them. And so he had a dream one night. And he was shaken about the dream. He wasn't sure about what happened in this dream. He wanted to know the interpretation of the dream. And so he calls all of his wise men in. And he says, hey guys, I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. The wise men say, okay, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I know you guys. I know you're just gonna tell me what I want to hear. I'm not gonna tell you the, the, the dream. You tell me the dream and the interpretation, and then I know that you're telling me the truth. The wise men were like, hang on a second. You tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. The wise men say, you have asked a difficult thing. Nebuchadnezzar was furious at his wise men. He said, kill them all. Daniel said, hey, wait a second. Wait a second. I can tell you your dream and the interpretation. And then he goes to prayer and he finds his three buddies and he says, look, guys, you have to start praying. Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill us all. And they prayed. God showed Daniel the dream. He gave Daniel the interpretation. And it wasn't favorable for the king, but he gave it anyway. And the king propped Daniel up. Daniel didn't know that was going to happen. Daniel didn't know that he was going to be used in amazing ways. Daniel didn't know that he was going to so influence and change a culture that was aggressive towards his belief in his God that it would result in three men traveling hundreds of miles to go see a little bitty baby born in Bethlehem. Daniel didn't know that he was going to have that kind of influence. All Daniel knew was that vegetables would honor his God more than meat. And he dared to be a little bit different. Stand your feet. <clears throat> so I wonder, as you consider your life and your faith journey, your relationship with God, 
My question for you this morning is, what is your small thing? What is your plate of vegetables? What's the area that you know you need to do or you need to be a little bit different? Just a little bit different. Maybe a morality thing, it may be a sin thing, it may not be. It may just be that God is trying to reveal to you your very next step in this journey that he has for you. And who knows, maybe at the end it results in you doing awesome things and impacting the world, or maybe at the end it results in you just doing good things in your family and nobody's really noticing but your family and your kids and you're creating a legacy. I don't know what your small thing is. Maybe you just need to stop cussing. I don't know. Maybe you need to stop watching movies that have cussing. I don't know what your small thing is. But we know that culture isn't always friendly to it. Right? Hey, have you seen this movie? No, I don't watch movies with cussing. What? That's stupid. You're weird, right? Maybe you need to tell your kids you're proud of them. Maybe that's your small thing. Maybe you need to start praying with your kids. Maybe you need to kiss them. And maybe that's your small thing. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just putting on you right now as the leader of your home, as a man or woman of God. Kiss your kids. Squeeze them. Tell them you love them. I don't know what your small thing is. Right? Maybe God is telling you to be that weirdo that when you're dropping your kids off at school, you say, hey, I love you. Embarrass them. That's, what, that's our responsibility as parents. What's your small thing? Maybe your small thing is in just a moment to step out and walk 20 feet down to this front area and let, let us pray with you to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. I know some of you, that's not a small thing. No, it's not, but it just takes a little bit of effort. Just very small, walking to the front, letting us pray for you. It's not hard. It's not going to cost you anything. Jesus already paid the whole cost. You know, I would imagine that these four guys got tired of vegetables over the three years. I wonder if there was a day that they smelled the steak and they thought, you know what, this is stupid. Nobody sees this. Does God even know what we're doing? Does this even matter? People think I'm weird. I would imagine that there was a time that they started to doubt if there was really any benefit to all of this. But remember, the remnant dares to be a little bit different. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes all across this place? Just a $2 message. I'm not going to give you the application, but I know that the Holy Spirit will. But I will ask you, would you dare to be just a little bit different? Would you dare to stand out from the culture and the crowd just a little bit? Would you dare to say, in this area, I'm going to honor God? In this space, I'm going to honor God? And when people see it and they question it, I'm going to keep honoring God? And though nobody else may be doing it, I'm going to do it. And they're going to look at me and they're going to think I'm a little strange. I'm a little quirky. I go a little bit overboard in some areas, but I don't care. 
Will you dare to be just a little bit different? If that's you, not knowing at all the specifics of what God is calling you to today, but if you would say, yeah, that's me, you know what, I'll dare to be a little bit different. If that's you, would you just raise your hand in that commitment to say, yeah, I will. Of course. I'll be a little bit different. I'll stand out. I'll honor my God in a culture, in a society that is becoming more aggressive towards my faith and my belief. Yeah, I'll stand out. I'll be a little bit different. I'm going to close in prayer. Pastor Dan's going to begin to sing. We're going to let you go. I know that this is a message that doesn't require a ton of action here this morning. But it's a message that's going to demand a little bit of action when you leave. In that area, you know what it is because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Dare to be a little bit different. Because I want you to know, Daniel's story did not end with a plate of vegetables. It didn't end with a plate of vegetables. God had so much more for him. Would you dare to be a little bit different? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Raise your hands if you're comfortable. Lord Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for being radically different. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth and living a radical life. Jesus, thank you for coming and, and dying just a radical sacrificial death. Jesus, thank you for setting me free. Jesus, thank you for redeeming me, redeeming me, restoring me. Jesus, thank you for justifying me. Now, Lord, I pray for every single person in this place, for every single person who raised their hand and those who didn't but needed to. I pray whatever that is that you are calling them to, Lord Jesus, help them, give them the strength, give them the anointing, give them the courage to be a little bit different, to stand out a little bit. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would solidify the remnant even before the remnant is needed. God, help us as a people honor you in big ways and small. Now, Lord, we know that you are in control and you have prepared a destiny for us. Some of us big, some of us small, but you have the destiny prepared for us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would follow you in the small things and we would honor you in the small things so that we would have the strength and the power and the courage to remain faithful in the big. God, I pray that you would bless these people. Use them and overwhelm them with your spirit. We love you and we thank you. Now before we close, as always, know that these altar areas are open. If you need prayer in any way, I'm going to ask you to come. If you need to solidify this commitment that you've made this morning through prayer, I want you to come. If you need to surrender your life to God and make him the king, the controller of your life, I want you to come. We're going to pray for you. If not, you're ready to go, go. I love you guys. Honor God in those little things. Be a little bit different. Have a blessed Sunday.